This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. 
Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Lisa Farmer. Now, Lisa is currently the chief executive of the Royal British Legion Industries, which is an incredible British nonprofit founded after World War I to take care of their veterans, and they have been doing so for a hundred years. So we discuss a host of topics from her journey into the nonprofit world, working with children with special needs, epilepsy, veteran homelessness, addiction, and the incredible tools they are bringing to the British men and women in uniform. Now, I also want to underline that RBLI is one of the two British charities that we are supporting with the Human Performance Project 7X. And once we have completed this round-the-world event and then collated the data to create a docu-series and a manual, a portion of the proceeds will consistently go to RBLI to support the British veterans. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I really do love reading your feedback and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating that you leave truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said... I introduce to you, Lisa Farmer. Enjoy. Well, Lisa, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. You're welcome. I'm uh, really looking forward to it. So where on planet Earth are we finding you, my morning, your afternoon? <laughs> You're finding me in Aylesford in Kent, which is very close to Maidstone. Um, so if that helps everybody listen. So my father's family are actually from Ashford. Gearings of Ashford used to be, uh, I think it was a well-known printing family back in the day. So I do have roots in Kent myself. Oh, interesting. Yes. And of course, we do do printing. So um, I'm sure we might have had a connection. Yeah, maybe. Um, All right. Well, then I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline. Of course, we're going to talk about Royal British Legion Industries, but I think it's very important people understand, you know, someone's path to where they are today. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. (laughs) <laughs> so I was born in Nuneaton in the Midlands. Um, I'm the baby of the family. I've got a brother and a sister uh, who are five and four years older than me. Um, we are a very working class family, um, very poor family, very working class. And we, mum um, and dad, dad worked in a factory and my mum had part-time jobs whilst bringing up the children. We're very traditional working class family uh, in terms of our values, uh, hard working. And we also felt very much part of the community, I think, uh, growing up. We're mad, bad Aston Villa fans. Uh, My dad took me to see Aston Villa when I was five. um, And I still 
go now uh, for my sins. <laughs> It's so weird because I left the UK about 20 years ago now. So when I come back, some of the, the teams that I think were probably Division 3 or 4 are now in the Premier League. And I'm like, it's just it's mind-blowing, absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, well, we're going through a bad patch. Not a brilliant patch, though. But uh, the glory days were 1980 and 82, which I enjoy very much. So obviously factory work kind of factors into what we're going to talk about a little later, but there are definitely pros and cons to some of that kind of work. If you look back in British you know, history, we had children working in you know, horrendous factories back in the day. And I think one of the encouraging things about the future is that as these robotics get more and more advanced, humans will be operating them, but they won't be doing the actual menial tasks so much. What was your father's experience of being in factories for so many years? So uh, he worked for Massey Ferguson, um, the tractor company, and obviously they stopped and closed down. And he was uh, really responsible for the quality of the control. So he could do every job on the track. Uh, and he then was able to look at the jobs and sign them off as being good quality enough uh, to be able to go go on uh, through the process. He worked there all of his life, um, as did my brother, who worked for Jaguar Land Rover. So from the Midlands, it's a big industrialised area. Uh, going into the factories from school was a big, big, big recruiter. Uh, and so my dissertation at university was on um, traditional manufacturing working practices and could the Japanese model of just-in-time be brought into uh, traditional tailorism practices that we had back in manufacturing back, back then. Um, so I've, I've always had an interest in, in manufacturing so, and, and certainly social enterprise, which is what we've got here at RBLI. Absolutely. Well, just one more kind of tangent before we get back on your timeline specifically. When we look at uh, cities, for example, here in the US, like Detroit, when there is a mine, when there is a, you know, a, a car manufacturing facility, or in this case, maybe a tractor or a Land Rover, and then all of a sudden they're gone, whether it's gone overseas, whether they went bust, that leaves a lot of families without breadwinners anymore. And I've seen that can often lead to, you know, addiction and some of these other areas too. Did you witness any of that within your uh, town or city when you lost some of these employers? So the the big thing is the strikes um, and the strikes through the, 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 you know, if you didn't go to work, you didn't get paid. So that's why I go back to this very poor family um, that, it was heavily dependent on this this income and it wasn't always there and it certainly wasn't very good income either but we didn't we haven't lost well massey ferguson closed down and of course that was a big issue um for the communities that worked there but because there is jaguar land rover there and there are some other factories there they were managed to in the main get swept up we were not as affected by the coal mines that were just destitute uh from that and and communities broken so it was not on that scale yeah it's not something that people think about you know the average consumer about okay this is cheaper now it's good for for my pocket i got this from china and then you don't realize well not only are we affecting our own economy and our own health of our people 
Um, but also something that Jocko Willink talked about recently because he started his own um, clothing company and they make their jeans. And in America, he found it almost impossible to find anyone that could operate the loom. So that's another thing that we don't think about. When we export our jobs, we export the skills as well. Exactly. And we, you know, we do signs at RBLI and traditional sign making skills is the dying art. Everything is now digital. Everything is lasered. Um, <clears throat> so to find those traditional skills is, is quite rare. What we have done is taken some veterans and trained them and given those skills uh, within our manufacturing company, which, you know, is a fantastic thing to do. Absolutely. Well, speaking of employment, when you were in the school age, what were you dreaming of becoming? Ah, well, I wanted to be an actress or a dancer. Um, and uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I was in a very rough school. It would be in special measures, I would think, by now. Uh, well, it is in this day and age. Um, but I, I was always very ambitious. But um, I'm quite unusual in the sense that I, I had uh, three children before I was 21, and that stopped my education. Um, and I got divorced at 22, age 22. I was a single parent with three children and no educational qualifications. So I took myself to night school and uh, got qualifications that enabled me to then go on to university, and which I did and did my dissertation on manufacturing. So I had a, as a single parent <clears throat> with three children at the age of 20, 21, you know, I had a lot of uh, negativity towards me, negativity about my potential, negativity about my future. I was written off. I was, you know, going nowhere. And people looked down on me a lot. And I think that was a big driver for me. And it's and it sits behind my passion for the people that I'm helping at RBLI. It's why I'm driven to work in the charitable sector. I'm incredibly passionate about disadvantaged people, disadvantaged groups, and breaking down stigmas and perceptions of what people have got of each other. Because you never know what's going on in somebody's life. No, I mean, that's what I talk about a lot, is I think one of the lesser known or lesser understood elements of mental health, whether it's veteran, you know, first responder or civilian, but in, in our professions specifically, as we always look at, well, you were in the Falklands, you were in Afghanistan, you were on the Grenfell fire, therefore that's why you are suffering now. And there's not much conversation on, well, what happened to you before you ever put the uniform on in the first place? And I think this is a big piece that we're missing, especially in the mental health crisis coming out of this pandemic. Absolutely. I, your early experiences really form who you are as a person. Uh, and we do we do forget that person, don't we? We you know through life, life gives you scars, battle wounds, and and then who are you when when you're out the other side? And I think that again, that work that RBLI is doing is always trying to get that person to find who they are, take them back to who they are, what skills they've got, what passions did they have, what do they want to achieve, and then we put a program around them to help them. To, to get back on that track and aspire to do those things that they wanted to do when they were young. I mean, I can't be an actress or a dancer now, I don't think. Um, but um, I, I've definitely, my passion for people from disadvantaged backgrounds and, and stigma is, is very, very strong. Now, did you do any acting or dance training earlier in your life? 
Yeah, I was really good at dancing, and and I was doing uh, at the school plays. I was always picked for the main parts, and I, you know, you just thought to yourself, "Yes, I'm definitely going to go in this." But falling pregnant at a very young age, um, you know, put pay to all of that, really. And then, obviously, you know, three children in three years uh, definitely put all those ambitions on hold. And by the time I'd woken up and thought. Oh my word! How have you got here? <laughs> um, it was all then about providing a home for my girls and providing a life for my girls, and that I wanted to show them I was a role model. I didn't want to show them I was a single parent, so that's why I went to night school, studied university, and then developed the career that I've got. That it doesn't matter where you come from, where you start, you, you can achieve anything if you want to. Um, if you get given the opportunities to also it's funny how life will circle round as well and this may well happen to you in the future i mean if you look at you know morgan freeman and some of these these actors that didn't get into it until they were in their kind of middle-ish years but i went to drama school really following a girl i went to welsh college of music and drama for a year um and discovered that i am probably one of the worst actors on the planet but was good at the stunt side. We did stage combat and all that. And that took me to stunts, which ultimately took me into television and film just, just for a moment, just, just to dip my toe in the water. And for me personally, when I got to that, I was like, yeah, I definitely don't want to do this. So it was interesting to kind of discover. But through that training, obviously it's probably helped in this podcast and being a good yeah. firefighter and a paramedic. So those skills, even if you didn't end up doing the exact thing you dreamt of when you were younger, if you look back, you probably will see some of that, you know, confidence you had on stage, for example, applying to where you are today. Yeah, it's about engaging uh, with audiences, isn't it? And so you can, you know, you can bring energy to a conversation. You can bring positivity to a conversation, and and through that, you get engagement. And and I found that that's been a big thing in my career that I've really been able to engage with people. Um, and to convince them that what we're doing is the most important thing that's going on and uh, for them to get involved and support and help us. Now, I know that you ended up at Loughborough College. Now, I know that college specifically because I went to sports science. Uh, I ended up in University of North London, but that was kind of like the pinnacle. If you got into Loughborough, that was that was it. Not you made it. Yeah, so what were, definitely. So what were you doing there and what were the takeaways? Because, I mean, now, you know, you're working with a lot of what I would call tactical athletes. You know, what, what were some of the things that you brought into what you're doing now from that experience? Well, I absolutely loved it at Loughborough. I, I would say to anybody who wants to go to university, aspire to go to Loughborough. It, it, it's just a high-performing environment where you've got the elite sport coaches in the world and the elite sports athletes in the world, and you see their commitment and dedication to what they're doing. And you want to be a part of it. You want to be a small cog in that wheel. You want to feel that you've contributed in some way to that. Um, and, and then you realise, I, you could, I couldn't do it. I couldn't be an Olympic swimmer. They get up at four in the morning. They're in the swimming pool for hours, and then they're, they're back at four o'clock on the evening, day in, day out day in day out the commitment and dedication uh to the to the sport is is unbelievable my role was to raise money uh, so i was involved in a 40 million pound campaign to raise sports facilities at loughborough and working there you felt this real sense of a team i knew what it was like to be in a team 
a proper team working for the good of the team and that you don't have to know it all. You don't have to have all the skills and all the experience. But what you do need to do is be part of that. And and as chief exec, I don't, I'm not a chief exec that thinks I know it all and I will blah, blah, blah. I know who the experts are. The experts could be our uh, property maintenance person or our receptionist or um, different people. They are the experts and you need to listen if you want to be a true team to everybody in that team. And so that's what I took away from Loughborough, that I don't need to be the expert. I need to surround myself with people who've got the different skills, experience in uh, that makes that team the best. And when you've got, when you've been in a team that's high performing and working together, there's nothing else like it on earth. You really feel it. And, and it's fantastic to be in that. Yeah, I can relate. When I worked in California, this one crew that I had, and this was years ago now, was, you know, that dream team, that most cohesive mm -hmm. group of men in this particular case. And then when I left that department and had to move back to, to the East Coast, I spent basically 10 years trying to find that again and, and really yeah. wasn't able to work with some amazing people along the way, but not mm -hmm. that entire, you know, cohesive unit. No, and, and I think the other thing I've learned, that cohesive unit, can last for just such a short time as well you know weeks that's it and it's gone because something has altered something has shifted it i've always been passionate to find from my time at loughborough the art of teams and trying to create the perfect team as you're saying i've worked with some wonderful people since magnificent but i've never had that feeling again where you we were all we were all a team and it was fantastic so um, that's my takeaway from Loughborough, dedication, commitment, hard work, knowledge, skills, expertise. The one thing, they all had egos. So, But I've learned you do, there's no room for egos in what, what I do. You need to leave your ego at the door. Obviously, the high-performing sports stars didn't. That was the, the big difference there and the coaches. Yeah, no, exactly. I think that when you were talking about that cohesive team, there has to be humility. And I, I saw that myself. And I'm not saying that I was you know, absent of ego either. But when you're all doing it for each other, there's that kind of altruistic synergy going on. The moment there's any self-serving at all, the whole thing kind of falls apart. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, very much enjoyed uh, my time there. And I would recommend anybody go. Now, before we get into your kind of journey into the nonprofit work, when you look back now at where you are today, are there elements of your upbringing, the way your your mother and father were towards you, that kind of pushed you into that giving kind of selflessness world, as opposed to maybe you know a business practice that would have made you very wealthy? Yeah, I, you know, you often you often wonder about this, but I think I think I'm driven to help people who have been written off. I, I've been written off more times than I can think. And that every time that happened, I would look, close my eyes a little bit and go, I'll show you. I will show you <laughs> that you should not have written me off. And I think that when I, with my having three children, a lot of my emotions and were driven into them to to always believe they could achieve whatever they wanted. For myself, I always knew that I was never going to 
go into a commercial environment, that I was going to go into something that, that would help other people. I felt that my experiences, what I'd had and what I'd gone through, I had to help others in that situation. I didn't have any help. It was all self, self-drive self and self-motivation. Um, and I could see other people who were, who'd got bad things happen to them just sinking. And I thought, well, you've obviously got something, Lisa, that you can you not you're not sinking you've obviously got something about you that's making you not sink so you need to help others who might not have whatever it is i've got that thing you've got inside of you that just like, utterly refuses to 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 sink really see and that's a really important perspective and i've talked about this a little bit within myself i've had so many people on here who have been literally about to take their own lives. We had a couple of people that actually, you know, made the attempt and survived the attempt. Um, we just literally lost a firefighter yesterday, I believe, to suicide here where I live. Um, and you've got kind of two, two types of people in the room. You've got the people, which I think is the majority that are, that are hurting at the moment, that are really going through something. But we're all so good. And I'm sure you see it in the veterans too. Our masks are impeccable. You know, we are so good at hiding it to the point where everyone else thinks, you're fine and they're the only weak one in the room. Yeah. Um, but the other side of it is there are people who either have managed to process their trauma and come out the other side of that dark place or, as I always point to with myself, by pure chance, by winning the lottery, I grew up, you know, on a farm. I grew up with around medicine, so I was exposed to a lot of gore. My dad was a vet. Um, we always sat around a big kitchen table and talked and had community and people came through the farm doors that were anywhere from gypsies through to members of the royal family and everything in between. So when I look back, I'm like, wow, you know, inadvertently, I had this incredible foundation. So even though I've had my highs and my lows and divorces and all kinds of things, I was never at the place that a lot of these people that came on the show were. So just like you said, then it's up to me to be part of the solution. And again, I'm not here monologuing, I'm bringing all these people on as well, but also for me to say, well, look, here's some of the things that appear to have worked for me. Here's how some of the trauma, because I was almost killed in the house fire when I was four. I mean, there were some things, but they were clearly processed, you know, in, in, totally subconsciously. It's not like I've done all the right things on purpose. So I agree with you completely. If if you are in a good place, don't look down your nose at people that are hurting at the moment, reach out your arm and lift them up. Yeah, because yeah, people would look at me and, and go, "You're chief executive of this amazing charity. Um, you, you've got everything set in life." But that's not the case, you know. As you say, the, the things that you've gone through um, that have brought about PTSD, and I, I've definitely had PTSD from some of my early life experiences. You know, I have been in an abusive relationship. Um, I, you know, ended up a single parent. I've had to, ha I've had no money, literally no money, but I've created a home and I've brought my girls up and they're all now, you know, highly successful young ladies. And then um, at the same time, I, you know, my best friend got killed by a drunk driver uh, at the time I was having a baby. And that, I d when I've had my PTSD counselling, apparently if you're at that age, around 17, and something happens quite traumatic at that age, it can have quite a profound effect. And, of course, um, being pregnant, about to give birth, your best friend being killed by a drunk driver, it was all very traumatic. And I think that created quite a lot of anx anxiousness within me. 
um you know at, at one point uh and people will laugh i couldn't leave the house for months and i certainly wouldn't get on a train and i certainly wouldn't walk on a path on a sunday afternoon when people are coming out the pub after having a few pints because and that and that those type of things stick with you but so that you people will look at you and think oh this is a successful lady but actually we all all of us don't we we've all got anxieties we've all got had things we've had to go through and deal with um and therefore i do think that i understand a lot of the people that we help no i haven't had their war experiences i haven't you know i haven't been in a, in a war zone so i could never understand that but i understand how you're dealing with anxiety and the thoughts and the processing and how difficult that is yeah well and like you said you do understand a lot as a human being and i think that's the big thing only a few people ever know what it's like to go in combat and i won't i'm not a veteran only a few people will know what it's like to cut a family out of a car or go into a, a burning building and pull someone out but what we all understand is exactly what you said. You know, a lot of people understand what a domestic, you know, violence household looks like, what an abusive household looks like. Um, what losing a friend. I lost a friend. Um, he was 18. I think I was almost 18. One of my school friends and I must have been driving, you know, too fast and ended up plowing into a house. And that was the first death. And I remember I was fine till the coffin got wheeled by. And then I was like, Phew. and then, then my realization of mortality crushed me for months and months and months so yeah i can exactly. relate 100 percent. yeah indeed indeed so well with that i mean this is, i think this is what's so important and i talked about this with a wildland firefighter the other day there's this facade that to join a lot of these professions you've got to be a choir boy when they look at the background checks if you've done anything oh you, you know you could never do this now and i i think it's absolutely ridiculous i think if you've made some mistakes and grown from them and it's not a recent thing and it's not involving you know children or something like that these scars make you a very good police officer firefighter soldier etc um so now you you have you know some of this strength walk me through your journey into the the kind of non-profit fundraising world yeah so i i realized quite quickly i was very good at sales i think it's that engagement um and when bringing up my girls whilst at night school I took a lot of commission-based only sales jobs um and so if I didn't sell I didn't earn so that really sharpened my sales ability and I realized I did, you know I did, just wasn't fulfilling is it um yes you make money for yourself but actually I'm selling things that I don't really believe in so when the opportunity came to go into the not-for-profit world that appeals to me um and originally in um i've been in all sorts of developments um on the waterways uh, developing communities and homes and then obviously into loughborough that was a slight detour and i absolutely loved it and i was what because but why it appealed to me was because not everybody's academic and you know i saw a lot in schools if you weren't clever you just certainly in my time people didn't you become a bit naughty so the non-clever people were naughty and were always in trouble and the thing about that is that sport if they're good at sport it gave them something to be really really proud of or music or art all of those things 
really gave people an outlet. And so I was passionate about the sports side for to help disadvantaged groups. Um, I really believe in it that, you know, you can do really badly in all your subjects, but if you're good at sport, it really gave you something to hold on to. And so that's what really appealed to me. And I um, secured funding for uh, the Peter Harrison Disability um, Disability uh, Centre at Loughborough University. And that was for people with disabilities, uh, which I was very proud about, but also um, d- did lots of other things. And then moving on from, from Loughborough, that's when I went into the pure disability area, and that was for children. Um, with um, neurological disabilities and physical disabilities. And it was then that the biggest lesson, I think, in life hit me was no matter what had happened in my world or my childhood, what some those children, they had never been given any chance, ever. They couldn't speak, couldn't eat. They're having 80 seizures a day. The parents of those children are just broken. And I stood there and I thought, you should never, ever, ever think that you've been unlucky because you haven't. You really, truly haven't. And those families and those children really brought a hum- you know, the lesson home to me that if you have got your health and you you are you are truly blessed that is that is the main thing really so that definitely put me into a different uh, headspace how i viewed my life how i viewed the things that i'd gone through how, it, it made them not they were nothing compared to what i was um you know chief executive of uh, this organization and and the parents and so that you know the passions uh, were there really to make situations better, to provide opportunity if opportunity could be provided, or to just provide the best quality of life that you could really. There was a nursing home in the department I worked for two two departments ago, um, and we used to just hate going there because usually it was the the older patients and. This particular facility, the staff were horrendous. They really were. So we get there, you know, it'd be the one where, oh, we just took their vitals and they've got rigor mortis. Like, no, you didn't. You didn't just take their vitals. This person's been dead for hours, that kind of place. Um, but there was one floor and I only visited once and it broke my heart because it was a floor where all the special needs children that I'm assuming had probably been given up by their parents were all. And yeah. this one particular little boy was a shaken baby victim and he was now... I think he was about five um, and basically died in my arms when we got to the hospital. Um, but seeing all these rooms full of these children that you're talking about that are, you know, their their quality of life, one would argue, was, was, was pretty poor. And then if that was the case, no family involvement as well was absolutely heartbreaking. So I can imagine the work that you were doing there. It, it is heartbreaking. Uh, and yeah, it, Yes, I, it's just really heartbreaking. And, and it really changed me as a person. And I think that's uh, where I truly lost any form of, you know, that ego or and, and that it was, look, if you can make 
this better or can contribute in any way to making this better, then that's that's something I want to do. But as you say, you can't make things better, actually, um, and that is heartbreaking. So very, very passionate about that role. And then I left there to come here, uh, RBLI, uh, in 2015. And the... What struck me about RBLI was uh, the veterans that we support, but it was it was about hope. So the other organisation, there wasn't a lot of hope sometimes. Um, whereas RBLI, you could really create hope and impact, and you could have the opportunity to change people's lives. So that's why the next step came here. That. I could make a difference and if I could change people's lives or circumstances then wouldn't that be a great job to to do well just one tangent from young epilepsy before we move to RBLI when I've had a couple of people on the show who are physicians but they also are open-minded enough to use some of the plant medicine and pediatric seizures seems to be one of the places where the marijuana seems to help hugely and you've got the whole Charlotte's Web thing. Was that anything that you were exposed to in your time there? Yeah, there was all the debate there about the uh, the oils and and um, and we supported parents uh, very much uh, with their with their treatment plans and and so some of these children, even though they couldn't eat, speak, or have an eighty seizures a day, was still required to have education. Uh, and so that was the work that we provided school and college and a hospital obviously and so yeah that was um a big aspect and i was really sad to see that case in the paper remember that big case in the paper that really brought it home about um the the alternative treatments and how they had to battle for that um it was really quite sad yeah well especially now because we're finally in this new kind of um paradigm shift where people are like oh it's actually not that bad we were wrong for a hundred years <laughs> I know. Uh, the treatment for epilepsy is not good. Um, you know, so yeah. It it was it was uh, you know, I was there eight years, I learned a lot and saw a lot and um that definitely defined me as as who I am now. Absolutely. Well so you have the Royal British Legion and then you guys are the Royal British Legion Industries. I know you actually predate by a couple of years RBL. So if you wouldn't mind, kind of walk me through the, the genesis of uh, RBLI. And then um, if you want to compare and contrast, you know, obviously you guys are in two different types of paths supporting the veterans. So it's going to educate the audience on that too. Yeah, absolutely. So RBLI was created as... Um, a delivery organization of services. So we looked after the returning soldiers uh, from war with tuberculosis. We provided them with housing, care and jobs. And RBLI is still doing that today, 100 years on. So we deliver services on the ground to veterans. RBL is very much that figurehead of veterans it's about remembrance they're behind all the big remembrance activities the Royal Albert Hall and, and the remembrance period in November they're also an organization that signposts veterans to organizations like us so if you're a veteran who's uh, homeless 
you would phone the RBL hotline and they would say, there's RBLI in Kent, there's uh, Hague Housing in London, there's blah, 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 and blah. So the RBLI's role, uh, RBL's role is to signpost people to organisations who deliver the services. That's the best way I could describe it. And so we deliver those services. We provide employment. RBL doesn't do provide employment. We provide housing. RBL doesn't provide housing. We provide care. They do provide some care, but we provide um, dementia care. And so, so that's the best way I can describe it. But we all should complement each other with with what we do and therefore i think if you were a veteran and you needed help the rbl helpline would be the first place you go and then they're set up to introduce you to whichever organization they think is best for you brilliant thank you because i mean as as you know i think ash cooper was the one that connected us and i being a brit for you know living there for 27 years I didn't know the difference. I didn't even really know of RBLI. So I think it's important that people understand that there are two amazing organizations that are are side by side and we need to understand both of them. Yeah, absolutely. And we've, we've been, our names have got closer together over the years. We, we were known as something different, but the name is definitely a confusion, but we make uh, the Tommies, the Tommy figures that you see across the UK. So we employ veterans in our manufacturing and our factory and we make products and we make signs. So we're the prime provider of signage for network rail. So all the signs on the railways are made by our BLI. Um, and we provide homes for homeless. You know, we take homeless veterans and we tr- we provide homes for them. We get them, we work with them on their issues if it's, uh, through our stepping model program. And then we've been um, building new facilities for veterans so we can move them on. So if you were homeless and you come to our BLI and you'll you'll have no we could we could never evict you previously because we wouldn't want to, but the uh, if we if we said, look, you've been here three years in this accommodation which is really not fit for you to live in here, if we was to evict, they would go back into a hostel. And there was no housing for veterans, for men between the age of 30 plus. So we set out to embark on build, um, create, raising money to build new properties for our veterans so we can move them on. And that's what we do with this organisation that actually delivers the services. So this summer, last summer, we we moved nine people out of our homeless accommodation into new accommodation, um, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, and we're seeing some amazing recoveries uh, from PTSD and other addictions through through the work that we're doing. And, and you know, RBL is a fantastic organisation, and it keeps remembrance alive for the world, for the for the UK. Uh, the poppies you buy goes to RBL. RBL. They're, all the services that are on around November are, are all put on by them, and and of course they are this kind of hub where you can go for advice brilliant well i want to get to all the different pieces you know as you said that you offer um before we do you come from the world of you know as you said you know epilepsy and the the associated um neurological problems now you find yourself in the veteran community for you yourself through your eyes what were some of the 
the kind of realizations of some of the surprises that maybe you didn't realize was going on in the veteran community? Yeah, I think I think the overriding issue, no matter what service experience they've had, whether it be good or bad, when and no matter how good the career the transition program is coming out of the forces, when you meet a veteran, you can tell her they've really struggled. No matter even if they've been successful, they've really struggled to acclimatise to life outside of that institution. You know, getting their own shopping is a big thing. Setting up utility direct debit standing orders is a big thing. It's They've never had to do it. And some people coming out are, you know, nearly 40 or older or slightly younger, but they've never had to arrange all these things on their own. And, and some acclimatise well, it doesn't take long, it takes, a, you know, a couple of months or six months, but others really, really struggle. And, um, you know, we see a lot of people here where marriages break, have broken down, um, re relying on alcohol or other substances to help, help them. They, they feel lost. You get this sense that they feel lost. They don't really know what they could do. I suspect it's liking it to where if you stop playing professional football or you stop being a professional dancer, you probably, well, what do I do now? What do I do? And so that's what I find. And I think that our programmes are around getting people to work out who they were before they went into the military, what their passions were, what they want to do, and to see how we can provide those opportunities for them now. Now they're out. Well, and you mentioned professional sports. I don't know if you've ever seen a documentary called The Weight of Gold, but it has Michael Phelps and some of, you know, elite athletes from all different sports. And sadly, one of them that's featured ends up taking his own life before they finish the film. So they, they actually talk about that in the movie. But again, they've identified as a swimmer, as a bob, bobsleigh, yeah. you know, whatever they would call athlete. Um, yeah. and it's the same in the fire and police and, and military. We spend our career as part of a cohesive unit. I mean, not so much in the first responder as far as we have to go home and still do all our, our banking and shopping and stuff. But in the military, like you said, that's all taken care of as well. But you've got a sense of purpose. You're part of a tribe. Um, and then, and then you transition out. And if you've identified as a soldier, as a swimmer, and mm -hmm. all of a sudden the door just closed behind you, I, some people do very well, but I think a lot of people really do struggle because, you know, for years they go, what do you do? I'm a firefighter. You know, and then one day I, I'm not. I'm a podcaster, which sounds far less heroic. <laughs> sounds great. No, yeah, absolutely. And and even you know, I see people who have been you know very successful military career and seemingly got a great career outside. But you can you can really see um, that they struggle with certain aspects of not being in the military and the way that it operates. It is very hier hier hierarchical, isn't it? Um, and you do, you do, if you're told you do. Whereas we know outside of that, if you're told you don't, <laughs> you've got a lot of, um, you know, free will and opinions and it, it's interesting. But um, but we have, you know, a lot of veterans here who've been in wars and, and seen and been in wars and they have had really diffic difficult times. And 
we've helped them we've we've helped them and we've helped them get back on the two feet and but they also want to be part of the community and we provide that sense of community as well that you don't you know you don't get everywhere these days as a as a firefighter and a paramedic you get a very very unique lens into society and then when you hear a lot of these prejudices that exist on the outside, it makes me very angry about, you know, the kind of looking down your nose at someone who's a homeless, someone who's homeless or someone who's an addict. So through this perspective that you have now, talk to me about, you know, some of the, the origins of some of the homelessness, because it's so easy just to shout, you know, get a job and throw, a, you know, 10 pence at someone. But these are all human beings that have an entire life story up to where they are under a motorway or in a hedge. I believe every human being is only five steps away from being homeless. And that's what a lot of people don't understand, how quickly that can come on you. And that's some of our veterans, that has happened as fast as that. You know, they've been in the military, they've had a career, they've come out, they've had a job, it's not worked out. The wife and themselves have split up or the husband and them have split up. They've, they've been so deserving. They've got nowhere else to go. Where am I going to go? What have I got? And it's so easy. It's so easy to fall into that. Nobody should ever cast aspersions on anybody. None of us, you know, some people start in life. I talked about the young children at Young Athletics, but some of the veterans here at life, they've been brought up in care. They've had no home life. They've gone into the military. It's not particularly worked out. They've come out. They've got nothing, nothing. We're here to help. You know, we're here to help that. We provide that. What I know is that no matter what issue you've got, substance or debt or all of the different issues, if you haven't got a place to sleep at night, all you focus on is where am I going to sleep tonight? That's that's it. That dominates your day. It dominates your life. Where am I sleeping tonight? The minute you put a roof over somebody's head, they can take a breath. And then they can say, okay, here I am. I found myself here. What what am I going to do now? And so that's what we do. We provide that roof over your head. And then we put a program around you to say, okay, let's set you up with a bank account. Let's get you claiming some benefits. Let's get you to a point where you can shop, cook, clean. Then let's start talking about, um, you know, some won't come out of their rooms for months. And but it you once you put that roof over that person's head, you can begin to begin to deal with all the issues. And in my time here, I've been here seven years, I've seen people transformed. I've seen people who are one drink away from, you know, never from from not coming dying basically in rehab. They're that bad and it's touch and go to now having a life, living in their own home. Um yeah just living again and having and being happy so that's that's what i've found and that's why the work of what we do is so important well i think that what should happen is that people should care enough to just want to fix this issue and i see the same in the fire service i mean as i mentioned we're losing people left right and center and the argument is always oh but it's money and the reality is actually if you proactively put invest in your people then you will save a lot of money because they're not getting sick and dying all the time. But even with this homelessness issue, if you look at people who are living on the streets, clearly they're going to be claiming the dole. 
Um, now you get them to the point where they're back on their own feet and now they're working. Now they're not receiving taxes, they're paying taxes. So even if you don't care about the human, again, investing your pe- into your people will actually save your nation money as well. Completely. Absolutely. And we, d- we are doing some social value um, analysis on our work and how that is, imp- is impacting on uh, the good of, of the country. Because you want people back working. You want people back contributing. They w- people want to contribute. People want to be employed. Um, and so, yeah, so our work throughout RBLI, we, by providing the home, by providing the support, by providing the employment and the training, we're actually getting people back living a life, living a happy life and contributing. And, and that's very important work that we're doing. Absolutely. Well, that's one area that has a lot of stigma around. Another one is addiction. Alcoholism is fine, but de- you know, God forbid you actually take a different substance that you know isn't available in the off-license, then you're a scum. So talk to me again about the level of addiction that you're seeing and then what are the, the kind of resources that these veterans have when they come through your doors? Yeah, so obviously we we aren't addiction specialists, but we once they're with us and we know, then we work with partners to help them with that. We tolerate, we we ask for a no substance use in our homeless accommodation because obviously if people are weaning themselves off and getting themselves off. The last thing they need to see is you know people doing that. It's a very, very difficult environment for us because obviously some are at the stage where they're off, some are just coming off, and some have no intention of coming off. So we have all that to manage, and it's 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 really quite difficult, and you really need some very good skilled staff who understand the subject and understand how to support um the the individuals with their in their issues and you know some people go forwards and then they come backwards it's not just a straight line out it's two steps forward three steps back that's the skills and experience and knowledge that i feel we've got here we understand that you go forward and backwards it's not always uh you know oh right i'm sorted i'm just gonna sail away now so it's very difficult it is very difficult dealing with all the different issues that different people have now, what about the mental health counseling side of it? I've had Johan Hari on before, and the phrase he uses is the opposite of addiction is connection. So his whole, you know, book is about that. You know, addiction is a mental health problem. It's not that these yeah. these substances actually have a hook. They are simply filling a void that's within the person. Completely, yeah, completely. And we deal with um, we work in partners. We deal with PTSD resolutions uh, who come in. We deal with. Um, combat stress, we deal with mind, we have all sorts of partners um, to, to support our veterans here. But you're completely right, the the addiction is a sign of the mental health issues. You know, if you have a hoarder, we know, you know, you're hoarding because you've got mental health issues and, and it's the same with drugs, it's the same with any addiction that anybody has and it's dealing with that in the first place and I think the work uh you want to do about more investment in why it's happening etc is a really key thing if we understand it more we'll be able to help better well you have a very interesting multi-generational lens within your organization when you look back at you know ptsd you'll hear you know 
soldier's heart, shell shock, you know, thousand yard stare. I mean, all these different descriptions of the same exact thing that our soldiers have experienced probably since the beginning of war. Um, yeah. Has there been kind of any any discussion or do you have any kind of insight into this the commonality through the last hundred years through the veterans that you guys have seen? Wow, that's a that's a big question. That's a big question. I having look, what I believe is the commonality is they want to be valued, they want to be respected, they want to feel the pride that they once had when they were in the military. They don't want to be seen as people who take benefits, people who've got problems. And that's what they're striving for really to be to feel like they felt when they were in the military um and to have a sense of place and a sense of purpose and not feel lost so that's that's what i would say is my takeaway from from the veterans that i meet so you mentioned about the employment side as well you know you have a, a a varying degree of, of, I guess, physical, mental ability within the people that walk through your doors from, you know, physically you have, you know, amputees that have lost limbs fighting for their country. You know, obviously you have people with, with the mental health side, the challenges as well. And with that purpose, again, you've got a roof over your head, but then you've got the ability to make money, the ability to, to feel like you're part of a team and contributing. So walk me through the different tiers of the employment side. So in the employment, we've got a number of things. We we run a LifeWorks course, which uh, has an 83% success rate of getting a veteran back into work. These are you furthest away from where, you know, I've been in prison, I can't get a job, or I've been unemployed for two years, I can't get a job. So our LifeWorks course is life-changing, um, and we've been running that for 10 years. Of course, we then have the advantage of running a, a factories. We've got three factories where we can offer work experience as well complement that life works and as you say I've taken in veterans who've been out of work for years and then get some work experience in the factories with the life works course and they're they're back they're back they're working they're feeling fantastic it it's a fan it's a brilliant it's a brilliant model we've got and it's a brilliant organization and it's quite rare and if we could have more of us then you know it would be a good thing so I was exposed to a phrase social business a while ago and I love that idea that you don't just simply hold your hand out if you can find a way of making money and creating a business within a nonprofit that is the ultimate model so talk to me about that versus simply receiving donations Oh yeah so this is what we're about if we can do a social enterprise with a 70% disabled workforce that's commercially profitable that has to be the top of the top of the pinnacle surely because they our workforce feels such a sense of pride when the sales figures go up for that week when they see how many sales have been done when they see what the bottom line is nobody wants handouts nobody wants handouts nobody wants to be on benefits they want to feel like they're actually contributing and i'll be like i'm determined to get our factories to be whole seen as complete best examples of that social business model working and we we've got that we we've got that we need to make ourselves a little bit more profitable we're not quite there but that's my work as chief exec over the next few years to get that and to achieve that now just going on the adaptive side for a second as well as you mentioned you work with people with disabilities very very early on in your your career journey 
and then now you've got these veterans that are also amputees. I've seen through my lenses in, in the CrossFit space, really, the kind of evolution of the adaptive athlete. What have you seen today compare and contrasting with, you know, 20 years ago when you first entered that space? Well, there's so much more openness to, and, uh, to looking at how to adapt. You know, in, uh, 10 years ago, you wouldn't employ person with disabilities because they'd just be trouble and it would just be a problem for the workplace. Now it's how can we employ, you know, not always, but how can we employ somebody with disabilities? What adaptions can we make? And that's the work that we do is look, um, we, we do these disability assessments across the UK to support employers. So we assess the person with disabilities and advise employers how they can make adaptions in the workplace to employ this person. And we've got to do more of that. We've got to do more of that. Um, people with disabilities in the workplace, they absolutely add something extra, something really great to a workforce. And I think it makes, across our organisation, we've our workforce 35% disabled, which I think is magnificent. Um, but in the factories, that figure's higher because that's our specific charitable purpose and aim. You mentioned as well about the criminal record being a barrier to entry. That's something that I've seen here. And again, if you reverse engineer to the mental health element and the addiction element, a lot of our men and women find themselves in prison for possession, you know, or a petty crime connected with them feeding their habit. What have you seen as far as, um, you know, that some of the, the areas that maybe we could be a little bit more proactive on, for example, addiction, not not smuggling, not selling, but addiction that are creating greater barriers to our men and women be able to get back on their feet. Yeah, this is a difficult one. There are some leading companies in the UK who specifically work with rehabilitated uh, and want to employ uh, people, but there's still much work to do in that area. I don't think we're anywhere near making inroads on that area. Yeah. If I'm honest. Yeah. No, I think the actual law needs to change. We've got to stop looking at addiction as a crime. Yeah. That, that, we're not making inroads there. I couldn't no. say. No. Not. It's been a hundred year longitudinal study. I think we can safely say the, uh, the data is reporting there's an epic failure. Epic failure. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Well, Total, there's, there's no tangent to this at all. This is, this is not a, an organic transition, but um, you have a pretty incredible human being as one of your ambassadors. So talk to me about how Harry Kane got involved with RBLI. Oh, Harry, well, he, um, he's got a real passion for veterans and for mental health issues. He's, he's set up his own foundation uh, for mental health. Um, he's behind a lot of projects about bringing down stigma he's about employment so we we fitted him in all kinds of aspects from the employment from the mental health from breaking on stigmas from veterans and we just found a synergy between him and us but he when he stops being a footballer he's going to be a real champion for men's mental health and his plans are just beginning to come alive yeah, I mean, I have to say, I'm not a huge, huge football fan. I'll watch the national side every time there's the Euro Championships or um, the World Cup. But I was so impressed by his leadership. And the same actually with Messi. I thought he was incredible. And then con conversely, um, Ronaldo 
was a bit of a prima donna and it was very disappointing you know i mean yeah. he should have been there with his team and and uh he kind of you know walked the other way but with harry you can't help but still be proud of the entire team and he's the leader of that team so it doesn't matter if they win it's how they conduct themselves in the tournament that matters to me he's just a thoroughly decent human being um he truly is and you see why he's England's captain absolutely well so obviously as you mentioned you know that any kind of support um is going to help help enable you guys to help our veterans whether they're transitioning just you know just need a little help or as you said they've got a criminal record and, and addiction and all these things that you're helping save lives in that uh, space as well i'm part of this around the world um project called 7x um you guys are going to be one of the two recipients of the charitable donations that Thank come from so that much. So, so talk to me about how people listening can also help though. What, whether there's someone that has a business, whether they're just an individual wants to chip in five pounds, you know, what are the best oh. ways for people to assist you guys? Yeah, no, any, any help would just be absolutely amazing. Um, obviously donations are fantastic. We also produce the Tommy products, which people, people buy. Um, but if you wanted to donate and just support our work, um, we would absolutely love that. Um, that's www.rbli.co.uk but also if you want to do something if you want to do a skydive if you want to run the marathon if if, if you want to be active um, we would love you to do that we're doing a big sleep out in March um, encouraging people to sleep out rough for a night to see what it's like just one night um, and w last year we got 11,000 people who wanted to take part in that. So we could make that a big UK wide event. It's called the Great Big Tommy Sleepout. And again, if you go to www.rbli.co.uk, find out about that event. We would just absolutely love it if people did that. We'd like to feature case study. You know, we've got a Facebook group that the people can be a part of and share their experiences. Um, and just to spend one night knowing what it's like to be homeless you know you will have a different opinion absolutely actually it's amazing how many people on this show were at some point i had uh one sabrina cohen who ended up as a chief in the british fire service but she i think she was selling the big issue for a long time if my memory serves me right it was a long time ago that we did it but yeah i mean some incredible people again as you said before are seemingly so um successful now if you actually take the time to ask them about their early life you'd be amazed how you know how traumatic a lot of people had it when they were younger and some of them they're suffering to this day because of it and some of them were were fortunate enough to grow from it yeah absolutely i keep saying you're five steps away from being in homeless person shoes so you should always be never look down or stereotype absolutely i think the the phrase goes if never look down upon someone unless you're reaching your hand to raise them up and i love that exactly agreed that's perfect all right. Well, I just want to throw some uh, closing questions at you before I let you go, if that's okay. Yes. Thank All right. You. The first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Um, oh, a book I'd like to recommend. Well, I read, I only read for pleasure. I don't read, um, I don't read a lot of um profound books on life experiences so probably not any one particular book i would recommend but i do like um the strike books 
that are out at the moment. He's a veteran, gone into detectivecy, so I just enjoy reading those. And what, what's the name of the series? Uh, so it's Strike is uh, uh, the service of uh, the series. Strike, okay, brilliant. And it's written by Robert Colbraith. And I'm on book five now, uh, but they've all been fantastic. Brilliant. Brilliant. What about a film and or documentary that you love? Oh, well, my favourite film is, is um, The Sound of Music. And there any documentaries? Um, oh, it's very difficult. My brain is not bringing them all back. There's lots of things that I watch. I like to watch. So I'll watch a lot of things on like murderers, um, things like that, and their life stories. So I do, you know, the big cases that have gone on in history, so Ted Bundy and then the um, the one who's appealing his conviction who killed his family, looking into those types of things. But then I, I love looking at, um, you know, past, scandals and the documentaries around them and the ins and outs of it all so i find lots of lots of those documentaries interesting brilliant all right well then the next question is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world well i would talk to harry i would say harry should i'd say lord Dannett should i think ash alexander should um yeah, that's three for a start. Brilliant. Well, Ash has been on already, but uh, yeah, I definitely want to you know, speak to the other two, especially Kat, uh, Harry. I think that would be phenomenal. So if you're able to help me try and do that, that would be amazing. I will. I will. I will speak to Harry. Thank you very much. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you and then we'll, we'll kind of uh, underline RBLI again. What do you do to decompress? Uh, dancing. I love dancing. I wanted to be a dancer, remember? So I still go dancing. What kind of dance do you do you align oh, mostly Latin, with? Latin and ballroom. So I do do all of them. I love it. But also football. So big Aston Villa fan. Went when I was five, going this Friday to watch us play Leeds. So football and dancing. All right. Well, then if people want to find you specifically, are there any places online or on social media? I'm on LinkedIn, so you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, so that's the best place to get me online. And then obviously you can always contact me at RBLI. Uh, so it's www.rbli.co.uk. Brilliant. Well, Lisa, I just want to say thank you so much. Um, like I said, our first conversation, um, you educated me on what you guys are doing. I think it's phenomenal. I hope this helps, you know, everyone listening understand a little bit more of not only if they're British but if they're in the US as well this is kind of the organization that we need to be mirroring here in the states too but I want to thank you so much for sharing you know your story um, and also what you're doing now with RBLI. Oh, thank you so much thank you for the opportunity and um, I hope that we can just bring more awareness and more support for veterans here in the UK and in the US um, and RBLI is a really special place um, and what we're doing, if ever anybody wants to visit, please come and visit us here in Elston in Kent.